We thank you for every opportunity that we have to study your word. And we pray tonight that you'll speak to our hearts, Lord, that you'll make these these stories clear to us as well as make them applicable and practical for our lives. Speak to us, Lord. We know that all that you've written and preserved in your word is there for our learning, our growth, our spiritual development. And we've come tonight to feed our souls, Lord, on what you've said to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been said, God's workmen come and go, but God's work continues. And that's what we find in tonight's chapters. A transition takes place. Elijah, the prophet, passes on the baton of ministry to his protege, Elisha. Now remember where we are on the historical timeline. King Ahab was killed at the end of 1 Kings, and his son Ahaziah now reigns over the northern kingdom of Israel. The fall of Ahaziah, and I mean literally the fall of Ahaziah, is recorded in verse 2 of chapter 1. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. And so he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. Ahaziah literally took a tumble. He was strolling one day on the roof of his palace when he fell through the skylight. Now he's laid up in the ICU. Contusions, concussions. He's a real mess and he's wondering if he's ever going to walk again, if he'll ever leave the hospital. But guess where he turns? He falls again, you might say, for he sends messengers to the Philistines to inquire of their god, Beelzebub. Now you remember at Mount Carmel, Elijah revealed the impotence of the Baal of the Sidonians. He called fire down from heaven. He put Baal to a showdown and the God of Israel prevailed. But there were dozens of Baals. The word Baal means Lord. And many of the false gods of the Middle East at the time were known as Baal. Ahaziah rejected the Baal of the Phoenicians But instead of turning to the true God, he worshiped the Baal of the Philistines. When Ahaziah sends his messengers to Baal to inquire about his injuries, God sends his messenger Elijah to intercept them. And in verses 3 and 4, we have recorded God's word to Ahaziah. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Guys, understand, God is a jealous God. He loves our affection. He desires our devotion. And he's insulted when his people turn to other gods for wisdom. I am sure that God feels the same way when we run to the gods of this modern age. How does the church justify turning to worldly consultants for wisdom? How does the Christian justify listening to atheistic counselors? Do we not have a God who is able to supply all the wisdom and resources that we need? Certainly we do. I believe that our God, I believe that His Word is totally sufficient 
to meet all of our needs. It can provide us a peace of mind, emotional healing, spiritual satisfaction. I believe we need to go no further than this book and its God to find what we need for our lives. When Ahaziah's messengers return and communicate the message to the king, he asks, What kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these things? Verse 8 tells us, So they answered him, A hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And Ahaziah knows immediately, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Now he dispatches 50 policemen to apprehend Elijah. But Elijah is a little tougher to bring in than the police expect. They find Elijah sitting up on a hill. They tell him to come down. Understand, Ahaziah is not the only thing that falls in this chapter. For Elijah tells the king's men, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And guess what? Swoosh! They all get burned. Guys, you always get burned when you fight against the will of God. Never forget it. Ahaziah is stubborn, though. He sends another 50 men. I don't know why these guys apply for the job, but they do. But as soon as they get to Elijah, they too get fired by God. Literally. The same miracle takes place and a fiery judgment falls from heaven. Now... Just in case you think that this might be a good way for you to deal with your enemies. Let's remember what Jesus said to James and John. You remember when the Samaritans refused to allow Jesus and his disciples to pass through their territory. These hot-headed disciples wanted to duplicate Elijah's miracle. You remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Let's fry them. There's been times, I have to admit, when I've wanted to fry an enemy or two. But Jesus, remember, rebuked them. He said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them. You see, Elijah had a ministry of judgment. But according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Our job is not to call fire down from heaven, but to extend God's mercy and God's grace, His love and forgiveness. Our ministry is reconciliation, not judgment. The fire we need to seek is the fire of Pentecost. We need to call down the fire of the Holy Spirit, the fire that purifies and fuels and forges and burns away the cords of bondage. When God says, well done, good and faithful servant, we want it to be a description of a godly life, not the degree to which the sinner's been cooked. (laughs) Well done, good and faithful servant. You'll get it. A third SWAT team of 50 men... Come to arrest Elijah. And this time, the captain wises up. He falls to his knees. He pleads for his life. And that's when the angel of the Lord appears to Elijah, tells him to go with the captain and personally proclaim God's judgment on Ahaziah. And true to his word, 
Ahaziah fails to rise from his bed. His fall proves fatal, and Ahaziah dies. Now, in chapter 2, Elijah's departure from the earth is at hand. And verse 1 tells us how God plans to do it. We're told God is about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind. Elijah is going to be taken up. The only question is, what will Elisha take up? Will he return to his business interests or will he take up Elijah's ministry? You see, Elijah knew the rigors and the hardships that come with ministry. Elisha did too. He had been 10 years in the service of Elijah at this point. But before he's taken to heaven, Elijah goes on a final stroll. And this stroll is designed to test Elisha's calling to ministry. He walks from Gilgal, then to Bethel, then to Jericho, then to the Jordan River. And at each stop, Elijah gives Elisha the option of staying behind. Sort of the option to bow out gracefully, to slip away, to go back to your former occupation, if that's what you truly want to do. But each time, Elisha reaffirms his commitment to press on, to do the work of God, to finish the ministry that God has called him to. When they reach the River Jordan... Elijah takes off his coat and he smacks it against the water. Miraculously, the waters part and the two men walk across on dry ground. In chapter 2, verse 9, Elijah says to his sidekick, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. This to me is a marvelous request. Elisha was well aware of his own inadequacy. He knew that God's work is always accomplished by God's Spirit. In fact, he knew that he would need twice the anointing of the Holy Spirit that Elijah had enjoyed. And so he asks for a double dip of Holy Spirit power. And that's exactly what Elisha gets. It's very interesting to me that Elisha ministers 50 years from 850 to 800 B.C., Twice as long as Elijah, and he also does about twice the number of Elijah's recorded miracles. Elisha's double portion, though, is contingent on him seeing Elijah leave the earth. Evidently, it was necessary for the younger man to continue with Elijah to the very end in order to receive the double portion of power. Only a man willing to walk in Elijah's footsteps could be trusted with Elijah's power, and I think that's an important lesson for us. So often we want the power, the spiritual power, demonstrated by godly people, but are we willing to cultivate the godliness needed to handle that power? That becomes the question. Elisha will receive the double portion if he follows Elijah to the end. In chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, we have recorded Elijah's blast off. Then it happened, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And so he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two. It was an emotional moment. 
Now, we usually have the idea that God sent sort of an angelic limo to pick up Elijah. But what's going on here is far more profound. Ezekiel chapter 1 records the prophet's vision of God's throne. And he sees it sitting on the back of cherubim. In other words, God's throne is mobile. It moves. We know that the Ark of the Covenant was a type of God's throne. And it's interesting to me that 1 Chronicles chapter 28 verse 18 refers to the Ark as a chariot. Psalm 18 verse 10 tells us that God rides upon a cherub and he flew upon the wings of the wind. I believe the fiery chariot that escorted Elijah to heaven was none other than the throne chariot of God himself. God revved up his throne and he came personally to take Elijah to heaven. There was one other Old Testament character who never died but was transported to heaven and that was Enoch. Remember Genesis chapter 5 verse 24 tells us Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. In the New Testament, though, there are a whole group of people who will never die. And you know who they are? The church of Jesus Christ at the time of the rapture. And I'm expecting to be one of them. Wouldn't it be great to be like Elijah and to depart this earth having never died? Now, when Elijah is swept up in the chariot, his mantle falls to the ground or his cloak. And Elisha uses this cloak to perform Elijah's last miracle and what becomes Elisha's first miracle. He returns to the Jordan. And just like Elijah did, he smacks the coat against the waters and he shouts out, Where is the Lord of Elijah? And just as the waters did for Elijah, they suddenly part for Elisha too. And in chapter 2, verse 15 We are told that the other prophets concluded the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And indeed, the spirit did. Now, there are many similarities between Elijah and Elisha. But there are also several notable differences. For one, Elijah's miracles reveal God's fiery judgments. Whereas Elisha's miracles convey God's grace and his mercy. For example, Elijah's first miracle, you remember, was to turn off the water. He prayed and God shut up the heavens for three and a half years. Elisha's first miracle is to purify the waters of Jericho and get the people drinking again. Some people compare Elijah with John the Baptist, a fiery guy, fiery judgments, whereas they compare Elisha with the miracles of Jesus, miracles of mercy and compassion. It was the same spirit that rested on Elisha. The same spirit that rested on Elisha was the same that rested on Elijah. But the same spirit worked in different ways through the two different men. And I think that's important for us to understand. Each of us will have our own style. Each of us will have our own emphasis. You may be a fiery Elijah, and that's how you minister for the Lord. You may be a more laid-back, merciful Elisha, but it's the same Holy Spirit who uses us, and He will use both the fiery Elijah 
and the more laid back Elisha. Now, Elisha begins his miracle, his ministry in Jericho, and the town owes Elisha a debt of gratitude. For if you go to Jericho today, you will drink of fresh spring water. But it wouldn't be the case if it were not for Elisha. In chapter 2, verse 19, the men of the city approach him with a problem. Their spring is polluted, and they ask him to work a miracle. Elisha puts salt in a bowl, a simple additive, and he takes it to the spring that feeds the town's water supply. This is what Jesus does for us. Understand, Jesus' cure for us is simple, as simple as salt in a bowl. It's his love. That's what changes our lives. But what's revolutionary is where Jesus adds that love. Here, Elijah casts the waters at the salt at the headwaters of the spring, at the, at the fount. This is where God puts his love. He embeds it in our nature. He plants it in us, in our hearts. He purifies us at the headwaters of life. You see, he purifies the spring that feeds all the other areas of life, our thoughts, our plans, our ambitions. He changes the whole man by cleaning up the spring. He puts his love in our hearts. He embeds it in his in our nature. And that's what then it begins to flow out into all the other areas of our life. In chapter 2, verse 23, we read of an interesting occurrence. And this is the only time where you might say Elisha loses his cool. Then he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. You remember chapter 1, verse 8 tells us that Elijah was a hairy guy. Elisha was apparently just the opposite. He was bald. And in verse 24, we're told, So he turned around and he looked at them, and he pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. You might say it was a grisly judgment indeed. Now, first, let me come to Elisha's defense here. First, don't think that Elisha goes out here and jumps on a bunch of preschoolers. The word translated youth was used of Joseph at 39 years old. It refers to an older youth, probably a gang of smart aleck teenagers who were hassling the prophet. And it doesn't say that they died. It says that they were just mauled. They probably got away with some cuts and scrapes. But they may not have died. Just a good mauling is what happened. Elisha, though, would not have been a very good youth pastor. 42, he works his youth group up to about 42, you know, and then, <laughs> then they turn into teenagers and he sicks the bears on them and starts over. I mean, that's not a good way to work a youth ministry. Elisha's youth group would eventually become bear feed, no doubt about it. And if Elisha was your youth pastor, I promise you, you would not be out toilet papering his yard. I can promise you that. He might be a little harsher than Pastor Kevin. 
The real lesson here, though, is to be careful what you say about a person who is serving the Lord. When you roast the pastor over Sunday lunch, when you laugh at the growing bald spot on top of his head, when you make fun of his inability to tell a good joke, watch out for the wild bears. Hey, I've got a man-eating Labrador retriever at home you just don't know about. Seriously, no one, no pastor, no ministry leader is above legitimate criticism. Just make sure that your critique is over valid and biblical issues. It's pickiness. It's trivial criticisms that are unbearable to God. In chapter 3, Israel, Judah, and Edom team up to fight against the Moabites. When the allies run out of water, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, he calls for Elisha. And it's interesting what the prophet does in verse 15 of chapter 3. He is seeking guidance from God, so he calls for a musician. And it's when the room, and I might add his heart, is filled with worship that God speaks to him. Always remember Psalm 22, verse 8. God inhabits the praises of his people. And if you want to see God work, if you want God to speak, create an atmosphere of praise and worship. That's an atmosphere that is conducive for God to work. A lot of artists can't work unless the situation is just right. They depend on the right atmosphere. And God always does his best work in the atmosphere of praise and worship. Next time you need to hear from God, approach him with an attitude of worship. The prophet Elisha tells the soldiers to dig ditches. And the next day, the Lord brings rain and fills the ditches with water. It was a life-saving miracle. And it's also a lesson for us. Only God can send the rain, but you and I can dig the ditch. God expects us to do our part. He expects us to have faith. If you say it's, if you pray and pray and pray, God, send the rain, send the rain. But if you never leave your house with an umbrella, you're not having a whole lot of faith. Only God can meet our need. Only God can bring the rain. But we have to anticipate His provision and act in harmony. If we're trusting the Lord to add to our congregation, then it's proper for us to go out and buy some new chairs, isn't it? If you're praying and believing God to take away your desire for alcohol, well, then why not clean out the refrigerator? If God's going to take away the desire, you won't need it. If you're asking God to supply a mate, why not be daring and go on a date? Don't just pray for the rain. Be willing to dig a ditch and catch the blessing when it comes. God's miracle also confuses the enemy. From Moab, the sun glistened off of the water and it looked like blood. And the Moabites assumed that the three kings had quarreled and had gotten into a fight and killed each other off. And so they charge into the camp, but they do so right into the hand of the allies waiting on them. And the three kings win a great victory. Now, chapter 4 records four more of Elisha's miracles, sort of the best of Elisha, I think. First, Elisha comes to the rescue of a desperate widow. 
Her creditor is on his way to take her two sons and make them slaves. Elisha asks her what she has of value. She's got one jar of olive oil. He tells her to gather all the vessels that she can. Go through the neighborhood. Borrow as many empty jars and pails as you can. When she starts to pour the oil into the vessels, she discovers that her one jar contains an endless supply. And a miracle of multiplication takes place. The supply of oil doesn't cease until her son announces to her, verse 6, there is not another vessel. What a lesson for you and me. God's blessings are endless. His grace is a well that never runs dry. Our limitation is never God's willingness. It is always our lack of faith. Our unwillingness to bring another empty vessel. In Scripture, oil is a type of the Holy Spirit. And again, the lesson here is obvious. As long as we keep coming to God as an empty vessel, void of our selfishness, void of our pride, He is faithful to fill us with His boundless blessing. It's when we stop coming that the oil dries up. Now, the second miracle in this chapter is an incredible miracle. Elisha raises a boy from the dead. Now, there is a couple in Shunem who have offered their hospitality to Elisha. They've set up a room just for the prophet. So when he passes by, he has a place to rest. Elisha wants to reward this lady's generosity. And in verse 16, we're told about this, or Elisha tells her, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Now, that's quite a blessing for offering a room. Of course, this woman responds with great faith. Notice what she says. Man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. <laughs> but despite her skepticism, God fulfills the promise and she bears a son. The blessing, though, turns tragic. For a few years later, the boy dies suddenly. The woman takes the corpse to Elisha's room and then she runs to the prophet and the first thing you notice about this woman is her faith. For when Elisha's servant comes out to greet her, he asks, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she answered, It is well. And this is what she had told her husband earlier. She really believed that things would be well. At first, Elisha sends Gehazi to lay his staff on the boy. But nothing happens. And what that means, we're really not sure. What symbolism that should conjure up is sort of, you know, it's hard to, to really determine. I love the comment that the famous commentator Matthew Henry makes about Gehazi's action. He says, I know not what to make of this. Thank you, Matthew Henry. That really helped us. <laughs> but let me offer you my speculation. To me, the rod represents the law. Moses carried the rod, the rod of Aaron. It all speaks of the law. And here I think what's being shown us is that legalism, the observance of rules and rituals, were impotent to help the boy. The staff failed to give life. 
First Corinthians chapter three, verse six reminds us that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The law sentences us to death. But if the staff represents the law, then Elisha speaks of the one who comes after the law, our Lord Jesus Christ. The dead are brought to life through identification with Christ. In Romans 6, Paul says that when Christ died, we died with him. We've been crucified with Christ. And if we've been crucified with Christ, we have been raised to new life through Jesus Christ. When Elisha gets to the boy, he stretches out on the body, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. And it says, if the breath or the spirit of Elisha is transferred miraculously to the body of the boy. You know, this is what happens spiritually when we identify with Jesus. He shares his life. His spirit is transferred to us. We're dead spiritually until we are united with Christ and suddenly we become alive with his life and with his spirit. Next, Elisha saves dinner for a group of prophets. A poisonous herb is accidentally thrown into the stew. When one of the prophets sips it, he cries out, There is death in the pot. No one ever says that around my house because my wife is a wonderful cook. This, though, is a problem for the whole human race when you think about it. Satan has interjected death into the pot. Sin has entered the world. And now it contaminates every area of life. What's interesting about this miracle is what Elisha doesn't do. He never tries to pick out of the pot the poisonous root. Many people think that this is the solution to sin. They put themselves through endless rounds of introspection, of self-evaluation, trying to pick out every little sin, every little ungodly thought and attitude in their lives. They think it's up to them to sift through the stew and find all the poisonous roots. Hey, I'll tell you the problem. Once the poison gets interjected, it permeates the whole stew. Without Jesus, I'm rotten to the core. There's no way to find the poisonous root because it's filtered through and infiltrated everything. Instead, I love what Elisha does. He simply adds some flour. Rather than pick out the poison, he trusts in the additive to neutralize and purify the pot. And this is Jesus' solution to our sin. Just start adding God's word. Just start adding God's love. Just start adding the influence of the Holy Spirit. Start adding fellowship with other believers. Just start adding the good things of God. And it will purge the poison from your life. You don't have to go through picking out all the poisonous roots. You'll be there forever. Just start adding the good things of God. And you'll suddenly start cleaning up without even intending to. Things will just drop off. Things will fall by the wayside. Suddenly your stew will develop a sweet and good and healthy taste. I love Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How do you beat the lust of the flesh? Not by trying to corral the flesh, but by just walking in the Spirit. And that'll take care of the rest. In chapter 5, a leper visits Elisha. 
But this is not your normal leper. This was Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, the Norman Schwarzkopf of ancient Syria, a man of distinction, a man of honor and valor. But since the day a leprous spot appeared on his skin, he had become a desperate man. It just so happened that his wife had a Hebrew servant who told him about Elisha. But when Naaman reaches Elisha, he discovers that the prophet of God isn't impressed with his credentials. In fact, when Naaman shows up on Elisha's doorstep, the prophet doesn't even invite him in, nor does the prophet even go out to greet him. He sends his servant with a message in verse 10, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. And verse 11 adds, but Naaman became furious. I'm sure he thought, man, I have traveled a hundred miles. At least this guy can get off his tough and come out here and shake my hand. That's probably what I would have thought. In fact, Naaman actually tells us what he thought in verse 11. Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me. And stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. And wave his hand over this place and heal the leprosy. Naaman thought Elisha would feel honored to help a man out of his stature. He would have made a big deal about it. He would have done some real flashy, splashy TV evangelist type techniques. He would have made a big deal over this thing. Naaman had it all envisioned. Elisha is going to orchestrate some holy hoopla here. It's going to be great. I'm going to be healed in a way worthy of my stature in my position. Naaman is about to learn an important lesson. God's healing. In fact, all of God's miracles and blessings comes not to the mighty or to the worthy or to the deserving, but to the humble. It comes to people with faith. It comes to people who will admit their weakness and their sin and their spots and simply do what God tells them to do. Go and wash. Verse 13 tells us, His servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash, it'd be clean. And he thought about it. He said, You know, they're right. And so he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. I'm sure the first six times he dipped, he was humiliated. He was so embarrassed. What a waste of my time. He must have thought. But when he came out of the water that seventh time, we're told, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He also was thankful, for he returned, and he gave praise to God, and he admitted that the God of Israel was the one true God in all the earth. And he also wants to make a contribution to the EEA, to the Elisha Evangelistic Association. But the prophet refuses to take his money. You know, the point of the way God worked this miracle was to prove that God's blessings can't be bought. 
Not with money or with honor or with clout. If Elisha had taken the money, he would have been undermining the lesson God was teaching. But Elisha's servant, Gehazi, he saw the money. And he wanted it. And he followed Naaman. And Gehazi concocts a lie. And he tells the rich Syrian that Elisha has changed his mind. And Naaman gives him two talents of silver. And Gehazi returns and he hides the loot. There's only one problem though. You can't hide your sin from God. Elisha calls his sidekick on the carpet. And he pronounces his judgment in verse 27. The leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. Greed was Gehazi's downfall. It's interesting. Elisha asks Gehazi in verse 26. Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing? The implication is that Gehazi had a regular payday. I mean, he wasn't a poor guy. Elisha didn't, you know, keep him in poverty. He had a regular payday. He had a salary. But Gehazi wanted more. We always get in trouble when we want more than what God thinks we need. There are three huge traps for a man in ministry. He needs to steer clear of three things. Of gold, of girls, and of glory. All three can bring a man in ministry down like an axe laid to the trunk of a tree. And here they yell timber over Gehazi. May they never yell that word over you and me. The gold, the girls, the glory belongs only to the master, not to his servants. Now you could entitle chapter 6, Sorry, I lost my head. An axe head, that is. For Elisha and the other prophets, they're falling trees for new construction. They're building a school for the prophets. When an axe head flies off its handle into the river... Now, I'm sure those of you who play golf can relate here. You've been hacking and hacking, and suddenly an iron flies into the water. (laughs) You've had to be there to really understand that. In the ninth century, iron implements, the ninth century B.C., iron implements of any kind were very expensive, and they were hard to replace. And besides, this was a borrowed axe, It's got to be returned, and so this made sort of a desperate situation. Elisha throws a stick into the river where the axe head sunk, and miraculously, the iron floats to the surface of the water. Now today, modern man has made iron float. Just go down to the shipyard, to the harbor, and you can watch the Navy vessels come in and out. And so if man can engineer iron so that it can float, then it shouldn't surprise us that God has his ways as well. God can do anything we can do and better. What Elisha does here is perform a miracle of retrieval. He recovers what everyone else thought was lost. 
And he does it by throwing a stick into the water. Isn't this what God has done for us? God has used a roughed out piece of wood, a stick, in the form of a cross, to redeem the world unto himself, to retrieve that which everyone else thought was lost. Once during the Easter season, a little boy noticed all of the crosses that had been set up on the front lawns of the neighborhood churches. And he asked his mom, Why all the plus signs? (laughs) Well, the cross is a definite plus, no doubt about it. Man was weighted down by sin, as heavy as iron. His retrieval seemed hopeless. Spiritually, he was sunk until God tossed in the stick. And the cross of Jesus has become the solution for our sin and our sickness and our death. The weight of sin is removed. The load becomes light. What was lost is found when we embrace the cross of Jesus Christ, the stick that God has thrown into the river. In chapter 6, verse 8, we're told that the king of Syria was at war with Israel, but the Israelis had a secret weapon. God was revealing to Elisha the whereabouts of the Syrians. The king of Syria suspected a traitor. And so he calls a meeting to find the guy who's the spy. That's when one of the king's servants tells him in verse 12, Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. (laughs) That could shake you up. When we go to Israel's Golan Heights, you can see the high-tech surveillance equipment that's all aimed toward Damascus. But here is the ultimate espionage. Here's some divine surveillance. Elisha knew by divine revelation what the king was whispering to his wife in his bedroom. When the kids were little, we used one of those little baby monitors where we monitored them in their rooms. And our Neighbors across the street, they also had one of these baby monitors. And one day, the guy came up to me and he told me, he said, you know, he said, we must be on the same frequency because we heard you and your wife last night in your bedroom. Talking about a scary thought. I didn't ask him what he heard. I really didn't want to know. (laughs) But it's even scarier, isn't it, to know that every conversation enters the ears of God. And nothing we say, no conversation we have, isn't heard by God. Well, the Syrian king, he sends an army to arrest Elisha. They arrive at night, they circle the prophet's house, and in the morning, Elisha's servant walks outside, and he sees this army, and he's frightened, he's scared to death. He cries out in verse 15, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha is so cool. He's so laid back. He says, do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Well, wait a minute. One, two. Well, wait a minute. I don't don't get that. Well, then Elisha prays, Lord, 
Open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It was an angelic army. It was the Syrians who were surrounded, not Elisha. It's true, guys. One plus God always equals a majority. You're never outnumbered when the Lord is with you. You know, so often people say that faith is blind. But to the contrary, the person with faith sees more than other people see. Secular eyes see only the physical and mental realms of life. Their sight is two-dimensional. But spiritual eyes see 3D. They see the physical and the mental, but they also see the spiritual realm. Faith enables us to see the whole picture, and that's what Elisha sees here. We need to pray like Elisha did. Lord, open our eyes so that we can see what you're doing in every situation. In verse 18, when the Syrians move in to arrest Elisha, the Lord smites the soldiers with blindness. And Elisha leads the enemy to the capital city of Samaria right into the king's hands. And verse 20 is really humorous. It says, the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and there they were inside Samaria. He leads them right to the jail, in other words. But at Elisha's suggestion, the king of Israel treats them with kindness and sends them home. And for the moment, it brings about a peace, but only for a moment. For again, in verse 24, the Syrian king lays siege to Samaria and he cuts off the food supply and a desperate famine occurs inside the city gates. It's so bad, in fact, that a donkey's head, usually considered unedible, is being sold for 80 shekels. A pint of dove droppings were selling for five shekels of silver. Conditions were awful. In fact, we're told that people were so hungry, they were boiling their babies for food. And the king, if you can believe it, blamed it all on Elisha. His judgment had caused this calamity, or so the king said. Of course, the king didn't say anything about his own sin that had brought on the judgment. And he vows in verse 31 to have the head of Elisha. And he dispatches a man to arrest him. When the king's messenger comes to Elisha, the prophet pins him between the door and the wall. And then he makes an incredible promise. He tells him in chapter 7, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a seah, which was about eight gallons of fine flour, shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Imagine. Eight gallons of fine flour, 16 gallons of barley grain for a single shekel compared to just the day before, 80 shekels for a donkey's head and five shekels for some dove dew. How could God orchestrate such an amazing turnaround overnight? Verse 2 tells us, an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? If God just opened up the heavens and poured it all out down on you, there's no way this could happen. He scoffed at God's promise. There's just no way. Notice, 
His heart wouldn't believe what his mind couldn't conceive. His heart wouldn't believe what his mind couldn't conceive. This is always the stumbling block to faith. As long as a person can see some way in which God could work it out, they'll believe. But what happens when the promise seems utterly impossible? Are you going to limit God to only what your flesh can figure out? Are you going to limit God to only what your mind can muster? Guys, God is able to work outside the lines. Don't box God in. He has means that you know nothing about. Elisha warns the scoffing servant that God will have the last laugh. He tells him in verse 2, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And here's what happens. The Lord does work a miracle. Verse 6 says that the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, The king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. The Syrians thought that they were under attack and they panicked and they split and they left their tables full of food and all of their supplies still intact. Well, the next day, four lepers from the city sort of wandered into the empty camp and they found the tables full of food. And when word gets out, everyone in Samaria comes out And begins to plunder the tents of the Syrians. And guess what happens? We're told in chapter 7 verse 16. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel. And two seahs of barley for a shekel. According to the word of the Lord. And what about that man who scoffed at God's promise? Well he was the man in charge of the city gate. And when the Samaritans heard that there was food. To be had in the camp of the Syrians, they stormed the gate and they trampled the gatekeeper, the scoffer. Just like Elisha said, he saw it, but he didn't eat it. If you limit God to only what's humanly possible, to only what's personally conceivable, you're going to miss out on many of God's blessings. Faith expands the possibilities. In chapter 8, we find that Elisha was also not afraid to warn a friend. When he pays a visit to the dying king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, he confronts Haziel, the king's assistant. And the prophet just sort of looks at him with this long, steely stare and just kind of looks at him. And it kind of freaks Haziel out. What are you doing? What's happening is, as Elisha looks at him, God is revealing to Elisha the future crimes that Haziel is going to commit against Israel. And suddenly, Elisha breaks the stare and he starts to weep. And he reveals to Haziel what he's seen. And Haziel is appalled that Elisha, his friend, would think that he was capable of committing such grisly acts as killing babies and ripping open pregnant wounds. Haziel says in verse 13, But what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? But Haziel 
has underestimated his own depravity. Remember Peter? He made the same mistake. He said, Lord, I'll never deny you. And yet he did deny the Lord three times before the rooster had crowed twice. Guys, never underestimate your own potential for evil. Except from, for the grace of God. Except for the grace of God. There are no limits to the depths of sin that any of us can sink. We need to trust in God daily. We need to lean on Him and have no confidence in our flesh. Walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Now the last half of chapter 8 through chapter 11 constitutes the final episode in the horrific story of the house of Ahab. We start out here with two Jehorams or Jorams. For about ten years... Jehoram, the son of Ahab, rules in Israel, the northern kingdom, while Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, rules in Judah, the southern kingdom. Judah's Jehoram, during that time, makes a huge mistake. He weds Ahab's daughter, an unbeliever by the name of Athaliah, which brings up another point. Don't marry an unbeliever. An unequal yoke is no joke. It will cause you pain. It will cause you trouble. It will cause you hardship. This evil woman brings idolatry, the idolatry of her parents, to the southern kingdom of Judah. She also gives birth to a son, Ahaziah, who succeeds his father after he dies. And so chapter 9 opens when Israel's Jehoram is wounded in battle. He's recovering in Jezreel. And that's when Ahaziah, king of Judah, decides to pay his uncle an ill-fated visit. Now, while the two kings are hanging out in Jezreel, God sends Elisha to a man named Jehu. Jehu was the commander of Israel's army at the time. And Elisha anoints Jehu as the new king of Israel. His army rallies around him, and Jehu rides to the outskirts of Jezreel, and he kills both kings, Jehoram of Israel and Ahaziah of Judah. When he reaches the city of Jezreel, he finds the vile Jezebel up in the city's tower. You remember earlier, 1 Kings Chapter 21, verse 23, Elijah had predicted the outcome of Jezebel, how that she would be eaten by the dogs, how that her blood would be spilt at the same place where she had ordered the execution of Naboth in order to get his vineyard for Ahab. You remember that prophecy. And so Jehu rides into Jezreel and he sees the old hag up in the tower there, you know, And she's shouting out and she's scoffing and she's mocking him and she's taunting him. Until two of her servants do everybody a favor and just throw her out the window. And we're told that her blood splattered on the wall right where Naboth had been stoned at her orders. We're also told that the dogs of Jezreel ripped apart her body, 
even carried away her bones so that when they went to bury her, all they could find was her skull and I think her feet and her palms. And at her funeral, the pastor said, Doggone it. In reality, he could have preached a message on the justice of God. For that's what was served, the justice of God. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. God's justice always prevails unless you reach out for God's mercy. Elijah also predicted that all the of Ahab's inhabitants, or descendants, would be wiped out. And chapter 10 describes Jehu's attempts to fulfill this prophecy. And Jehu wages a campaign of genocide against anyone related to Ahab and Jezebel. Jehu also wipes out the worshipers of Baal in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he does it kind of deceptively. In chapter 10, verse 18, he announces to the nation, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. And after he makes that announcement, he calls for a feast. A feast to Baal to flush out all of the Baal worshipers. He invites them to the temple of Baal. And they pack the place, man. They're, it's all, they're, they're, it's full to the gills. But it's an ambush. Because Jehu has 80 executioners stationed outside the temple of Baal. And at Jehu's command, they lock the doors and the slaughter begins. And Jehu burns down the temple of Baal. And in verse 27, we are told that he turns the whole site into a garbage dump. That's what he thought of Baal worship in Israel. Now, God rewards Jehu for his anti-Ahab crusade. God had predicted the demise of Ahab and his descendants. And as a reward, the next four kings of Israel are all Jehu's descendants. There is, though, an indication. It's in Hosea that God wasn't completely happy with Jehu's actions. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 4, God says, I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. And apparently he was talking about this episode where he killed the worshipers of Baal. Evidently, Jehu just went a little bit overboard in his zeal. It is true, God hates sin. But we must never forget that God loves a sinner. God hates sin. We need to hate sin too. But God loves the sinner and we should never forget that and we should reflect his love. And though God desired to rid the land of Baal worship, I'm sure it grieved God to see all of these people slaughtered. Especially without the opportunity to repent. That's what God desired. He wanted them to repent and turn back to him. Jehu was righteous, he had a righteous zeal, but Jehu lacked compassion. Don't fall into that same mistake. Yes, have zeal, but couple that with compassion and love. It's interesting, Jehu was so vengeful, really, on the idolaters, the worshipers of Baal, 
but he committed idolatry himself. In chapter 10, verse 29, we're told that like all of Israel's kings, he succumbed to Jeroboam's more subtle form of idolatry, and he worshipped the golden calves in Bethel and in Dan. Chapter 10 closes with one more descendant of Ahab still on the loose. You remember Athaliah, the Jezebel of Judah. She was also Ahab's daughter. And when she realizes that her son Ahaziah has been killed by Jehu, she makes herself queen over Judah, the only time that a woman sat on the throne. And to solidify her claim to the throne, she kills off all of Ahaziah's heirs, which incidentally would have been her own children and her own grandchildren, which shows you what kind of a gal she was. Remember, she had Jezebel as a mom. Only one boy escapes. Ahaziah's sister scoops up Joash and hides him in the temple. Now, understand, this was an incredibly close call. God had promised to David a son to always sit on his throne. The Davidic covenant spotlights on an eternal king, a descendant of David. We call him the Messiah. This eventually was fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. But if Athaliah had succeeded in ridding herself of all of her Davidic competition, Jesus could have never been born. It was a close call indeed. Satan came within seconds of cutting off the Messianic line and ending any possibility of our salvation. I think when we get to heaven... We need to look up Ahaziah's sister, Jehoshaphat, and we all need to thank her. Because without her quick thinking, scooping up that little boy and hiding him, there would be no hope for any of us. We literally owe Jehoshaphat our salvation. For the next six years, while Athaliah sits on the throne, Jehoiada, the priest at the time, he trains, he rears Joash to be king. He hides him in the temple of Jehovah. I'm sure that was the one place the evil Athaliah never visited, the temple of Jehovah. Finally, the day comes for the boy to be unveiled. And Jehoiada brings him out under heavy guard and anoints him king. Athaliah is executed And Jehoiada makes an end of Baal worship in Judah. And in chapter 11, verse 21, we're told, Jehoash was seven years old when he became king. Can you imagine? Seven years old, sitting on the throne. And that's where we'll pick it up next week, at the reign of the boy king. Hear ye, hear ye. Nintendos and ice cream for everyone. (laughs) Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful stories that we've read and the lessons that we've gleaned. Help us to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you, but that we might walk in a way that pleases you, Lord. We love you. And as we grow in our knowledge of your word, we realize how much you love us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, you're dismissed.